uh, to set the story up, it was over Christmas break. Uh, and uh, of course, it's in the middle of COVID. So there aren't very many places you can even go out to dinner at. And um, my family and I went out to, to eat and we had just opened conference play and we'd lost our first conference game. And um, we'd started conference before Christmas because of the adjusted COVID schedule. And uh, there was a, a, a group of people, well, couple of couples uh seated beyond you know just to the booth beyond us and um game came on tv there at the at the little sports bar where we were eating and uh men's basketball was on and they made a comment about uh, what a great job coach Kruger was doing and that our men had a chance to get up into the top 25 if they won this game and um then one of the the guys just said you know Sherry Cole came in and just resurrected Oklahoma basketball and it was the best thing going. And then now they can't win a game. And it was just um, sort of deflating. My back was to them. Right. And so they have this conversation and it's just almost like an out of body experience. You're like, Whoa. <laughs> and it got really quiet at the table and um, nobody said anything. And then we kind of went on for some conversation. And a couple minutes later, my son, who is um, a, a very wise at the time, 28, um, 29 now, but at, at, he said, uh, seriously, mom, like you're gonna, you're gonna let that ruin our dinner because I hadn't said anything for a couple of minutes. Welcome to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Coach Sherry Cole to the podcast. Coach Cole is a former head women's basketball coach at Oklahoma University. She served as the head coach at OU for 25 years, leading the program to 19 consecutive tournament appearances and three Final Four appearances. She was the Big 12 Coach of the Year four times and is a member of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame and the Oklahoma Sports Hall of Fame. She also served as an assistant coach in 2001 and the head coach for USA Basketball in 2013 at the World University Games, where she led Team USA to a gold medal. In our conversation, we talk about how to handle criticism and praise, separating your identity from the performance of your team, and how to create a program that's about more than just winning games. A quick note about the podcast going forward. I'm going to be splitting some of my conversations into two parts, including today's. To be totally honest, the main reason is because my time is limited. I teach full-time, and I'm about to be in the thick of basketball season, and my wife and I are also expecting our second baby boy in January. I don't want to spread myself too thin and fail to be my best for my family, my job, or this podcast. I'm still committed to bringing you valuable conversations to help you get better. Just know that some of them will be delivered in two parts going forward, which means episodes will likely be between 30 and 40 minutes long, opposed to the 50 or 60 minute episodes that I typically put out. And I just want to say thanks again for listening, and I hope that you'll continue to do so. If you enjoy this episode and want to get a copy of the podcast notes, go to coachesclubpod.com and drop your email in the form to get the notes from this episode or any episode. And if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you probably remember me talking about the cohorts I was going to be running. Well, I'm currently running a cohort right now, and I'm getting ready to run another cohort beginning November 3rd. 
The cohort is six weeks long and includes weekly meetings covering different coaching topics, access to replays and resources, a private cohort group me, one 60-minute one-on-one call slash film review session with me, and more. The next cohort begins on Wednesday, November 3rd, and will run for six straight Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Central Time each week. Here's what Garrett, a basketball coach from Connecticut, had to say about his experience in the cohort. This cohort has been so great for my coaching because I am able to collaborate with coaches from all different sports. We've shared videos of each other's films, commented on one another's films, we've shared philosophies, and we've shared our ideas and grown together in just the few weeks that we've been meeting. I'm very excited for the rest of the cohort, and I would recommend it for any coach. There's only 12 spots available for the next cohort, so grab yours before they fill up. If you're interested in learning more about the cohort or signing up for the next round, go to transformsport.org cohorts, or just click the link in the show details. Now to my conversation with Coach Sherry Cole. Enjoy the episode. All right, coaches, really excited to welcome Coach Sherry Cole to the podcast today. Coach Cole is the former head coach of Oklahoma women's basketball. Uh, coach Cole, really appreciate you joining me today. And I'd love if we could start off by having you share the story that I heard you share actually at the What Drives Winning Conference about a dinner you had with your family. Would you tell us that story? Sure. Uh, it's one of those uh, kind of surreal moments that um, looking back, I'm so glad I experienced it. Um, uh, but it's one of those things that maybe lots of coaches uh, envision happening in their mind and they make it even worse than it might actually be. And then it happens and you're like, okay, I lived through that. But uh, to set the story up, it was over Christmas break. Uh, and of course, it's in the middle of COVID. So there aren't very many places you can even go out to dinner at. And um, my family and I went out to, to eat and we had just opened conference play and we'd lost our first conference game. And um, we started conference before Christmas because of the adjusted COVID schedule. And uh, there was a, a group of people, well, a couple of couples uh, seated beyond, you know, just to the booth beyond us. And um, game came on TV there at the, at the little sports bar where we were eating and uh, men's basketball was on. And they made a comment about uh, what a great job Coach Kruger was doing and that our men had a chance to get up into the top 25 if they won this game. and um, then one of the, the guys just said, you know, Sherry Cole came in and just resurrected Oklahoma basketball and it was the best thing going. And then now they can't win a game. And it was just um, sort of deflating. My back was to them. Right. And so they have this conversation and it's just almost like an out of body experience. You're like, whoa. <laughs> and it got really quiet at the table and, um, Nobody said anything. And then we kind of went on for some conversation. And a couple of minutes later, my son, who is um, a, a very wise at the time, 28, um, 29 now, but at, at, he said, uh, seriously, mom, like you're going to, you're going to let that ruin our dinner because I hadn't said anything for a couple of minutes. And it was just as though he had reached inside of me and, and tapped on my heart a little bit. And I took a deep breath and my eyes were filled with water. And I said, you know what? I am not going to let that ruin our dinner. And we all kind of laughed and we went right back to eating. And at the end of the night, 
when we finished, um, I went and found the waiter and bought the meal for the families that were sitting there and um, went out to my car actually on a high, a greater high than I had been when I walked in the restaurant before anybody said anything. And I think for me, the power of that is that that we have so much control over how we process things and what we do in our minds and, and uh, to be able to repurpose that for good uh, was just a really pivotal moment in my heart and in my head. That's such a powerful story. A couple of follow-up questions to it. Those couple of minutes where you're sitting quietly at the table before your son said that, what were the things that you were telling yourself after oh, that person made that comment? Your My immediate competitive response, I wanted to wheel around at the table and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, it's the middle of COVID. We'd had three players opt out and not participate in the season. The day before we went to KU to play our opening conference game, we had uh, a COVID diagnosis and contact tracing. We actually made the trip with six players, six players. Like that's the total. My AD went and helped us helped hand out water on the bench because we didn't have any managers that could take we could take because of contact tracing. So there were just all of these things, the context that these poor people had no idea. This man who was making the judgment call had seen a score go across the ticker and that's what he had based his, his comment on. He had no idea and that's not his fault, you know, but at that moment, my interior competitive desire was to turn around and go, listen, you have, so there's a little bit of anger. There's a little bit of embarrassment. There's a little bit of shame. Um, I didn't have to live through very many hard times with my children in, in regard to my coaching career, because when we built this thing, they were so small. They didn't, they didn't have to hear any of the bad stuff when you're not very good and you're trying to get good. And then their lives have been through the really good days where people are just, you know, really excited and they can't say enough good things about your mom. And then now as this difficult season, the last couple of seasons that were a little bit difficult, they had to live through that. Um, there's a little bit of, of embarrassment there and getting used to what that might feel like to have everybody not be so complimentary. And the second thing I thought of, and this is actually real time, this is what crossed in my brain at the time. Imagine what it would be like to be a really high profile coach like Bob Stoops, who was our football coach, who lost a game and had for sale signs in his front yard when he woke up the next day. I mean, it's it's just another thing on steroids. And so um, there were all these thoughts sort of swirling around in my head and things that I was trying to process. And I'm just so grateful to the wisdom of my 28 year old kid to kind of thump me back to reality. Yeah, that's good. I, I appreciate your honesty in that. And I think that kind of segues into one of the other things I wanted to talk about. And you started to mention it there. You know, the, the perception towards coaches or the, the evaluation and judgment of coaches is just almost exclusively tied to a win and loss record, it seems like. Which I think as coaches, we know that there's just so much more to it than that. And I think most coaches, that's not their own sole measure of success, or hopefully it's not. For some, I'm, maybe it is. But I guess my question would be, you, I mean, you guys had a lot of success in your program during your time there. How were you able to 
keep your identity as a person separate from the performance of your team and the outcome of games? That's a great question, Luke. And I think it may be the most important one for coaches, especially in this day and age and moving forward um, to have a game plan for before they reach the platform or else it chews you up. Uh, The world of social media is just so all encompassing now that uh, to try to, to figure out how to balance all that when the imbalance comes, it's probably too late. Uh, You're going to struggle. You'll drown in it all. So I think having a game plan going in is really important. I didn't uh, at the time, but I was so fortunate. I had two little babies. My son was four when I started this job and delivered my daughter two weeks after the press conference uh, when I got the job at Oklahoma. So my kids were little. I would come home from the first two years. We were terrible. The first year we won five games and second year we won eight and um, we were awful. It, it wasn't just we lost five. They were ugly. I, I mean, it wasn't that we just won five and lost all the others. The, the ones we lost were so ugly. And um, that was very difficult because I'd come from a high school program where we'd won state championships and lost maybe one game a year and just wasn't used to the losing. But I would come home and I had a baby that needed to be rocked and another that needed to be read a story and they needed to be fed and they needed a bath. And so life was real. I was very, very grounded. There was, you know, clothes to wash and diapers to change. There was stuff going on at home. And um, that kept me balanced. It's amazing what rocking a baby at night can do for your perspective. Um, I was very fortunate there, but we built it quickly and got uh, really good, really fast. And uh, I remember in 2002, uh, when we ultimately played for the national championship and lost to Connecticut in the championship game, um, that particular season, um, our team was so good, uh, such talented kids on our roster and um, enjoyed amazing success. And the first ever final four in the history of University of Oklahoma women's basketball and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, I'm just getting all this mail, all this mail that is telling me how wonderful I am and how amazing And it's not always just your team. A lot of it's so personally pointed to you. And I had to realize right then that, um, boy, these are the same people that if we were losing would probably be writing me really bad letters. And I had a file that I kept literally in my file cabinet and it said poison pen slash appreciation. And I put everything in there, those bad letters I got in the first few years and those amazing letters I got once we got it going. And I wanted to put them in there. I never read it, never opened it. Matter of fact, tossed it when I moved out of the office um, a few months ago, just found the huge file. Uh, I put them in there in hopes that they would all swirl around. And I would remember that I'm not as good or as bad as any of them think. And I just wanted to be able to live in as much reality as I could. So um, I sort of backed my way into having some um, um, measures, if you will, to kind of keep me um, being a real person and not getting caught up in, in this thing that it can be. And at, at my level, at the, at the college level, you know, there's so much um, uh, outside attention that maybe uh, high school coaches or smaller coaches feel the same. They feel the same pressure to win and, and the same judgment in terms of outcome uh, but it's not quite as as broad as when you go up the ladder and have the big platform. And uh, our little joke with my kids was always people would say, are you Sherry Cole? And we would say I would say, 
nope, but I play her on TV. And that was just a little joke with my kids. We would just giggle about that uh, because that person was a little bit of a persona. Yes, it is who I am, but it's only a small slice that the world is getting the chance to see. And so to make it sort of a fictional character was just kind of one of the ways that we, we kept me real. That's really good. And I think one of the things that I heard you mention there and also in the story that you shared at the beginning is just the reality that people on the outside, they just lack context. And when people lack context, we probably shouldn't be attached to their praise or criticism, like you said, with your folder. No question. No question. And you can't blame them. That's the other part of that. It's it's easy to see how when any of us don't have context for a situation, um, we can make judgments or opinions or um, decisions that are ill-informed. And so um, we have to be careful about that. And if other people fall into that, you know, uh, we have to look at that, I think, with a touch of grace as well. Uh, they can't know everything that you know. And uh, I think that's the case for most coaches, even if you're not in the middle of a COVID season. You know, they don't, they don't know that maybe your star player, um, maybe one of their parents is sick, or, or maybe they've uh, just lost a grandparent, or or maybe they're really battling an injury that nobody's making public, but they hurt every day. I mean, there are all kinds of things. They're struggling in school. They broke up with their boyfriend or girlfriend. There's a million things that people on the outside don't see. And they say, oh, so-and-so didn't show up to play tonight. Well, there's oftentimes a lot of reasons why that occurred. And so that context, and I think just grace to cover the gaps that, um, that, exist when you don't have the appropriate context. That's probably the best gift a, co- gift a coach can give themselves. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, there's often so much going on that just people have no idea about kind of shifting a little bit. And this actually wasn't on my list of questions, but I'm really curious now, you mentioned it, that when you took over the program at OU, I mean, your first couple of years were, were rough and then you got it going quickly and sustained success for a long a long period of time. I'd love for you maybe just to talk a little bit about what were a few of the keys to turning around that program relatively quickly? Number one, continued acts of sincerity. Just do the right thing, the best thing that you can do over and over and over again. Because initially what you have to change is the perception people have of the program. So our per, the perception of our program when I took over was was very poor from the outside looking in because we hadn't won. Um, it was pretty poor from the inside looking out because uh, our the team and the players in the program hadn't necessarily um, behaved in such a way so that people would see it as a place that has high standards of excellence. And by that, I don't mean anybody was a bad person or doing anything wrong. There just wasn't an elevated expectation of success within the program. And so in order to change the perception of that, whether you're talking about the way uh, the academic tutors uh, look at your your players when they walk in the room to the way the student body um, feels about the program or the team, uh, fans, community, there's all kinds of things. And so you just continued acts of sincerity, one thing after the other, meaning 
you do what you say you're going to do. Uh, you show up on time. Um, you dress appropriately. You go down the list of all the little things that you can do to shift perspective to one of high expectation. And you do those things over and over and over, almost ad nauseum, but that's the way you build it. Yeah, that's really good. Tell me a little bit more about specifically with your players and taking over a program where, like you said, there wasn't necessarily a high level of expectations or a commitment to excellence. How did you shift that for your athletes? Well, you know, before you can expect other people to view you in a certain way, you have to view yourself in that way. So if you want other people to look at you and have high expectations about what you do, you have to first have high expectations for yourself and you have to earn that. You have to work your way into that. It's not something you sit in the corner and repeat 15 times. It's acts. It's actually doing things. So um, uh, arriving early, 10 minutes early was our rule. Um, that was just a, a way you learn to be. And it's so funny. Uh, my players now that are, you know, grown, have children who are <laughs> older than I want to admit right now. <laughs> if, if we're, if I'm going to meet one of them for, for lunch, we are both there 10 minutes early to this day. And we just laugh when we look at each other, because that's, that was our rule. That's just, a, that was a way that we behaved. And so I think it's, it's making them feel or helping them feel like they deserve those expectations and that um, perception that the public has of them. So it's a work ethic. It's earning. It's putting in time. It's doing hard things. It's um, being true to your word, doing the things that you say you're going to do. Uh, those are all pieces of feeling like you deserve that and then owning that. And then the next step of that, now you carry your way, yourself in such a way so that that's the expectation people have of you. It's just a process that always starts from the inside and ripples its way out. That's really good. And you've hit on a couple of things that I've heard, but the next thing I'd love, love to talk about, you know, you were at Oklahoma for 25 years, correct? Yes, sir. That's a long time, especially at a, you know, division one program and you sustain success there. I'd love if you would talk more about some of the aspects of your leadership that you believe helped you hold that position for such a long time and sustain success. I've heard you say, talk about essentially modeling what you expected from others and sincerity of your actions, but were there other things that you were really intentional about in your leadership that you think contributed to that success? Yeah. First of all, I just want, I want to be clear that you said I've been at Oklahoma for 25 years and I was, I want everybody to know I got the job when I was 12. Okay. In case anybody's doing math out there, um, 25 years is a long time, as you said. Um, yeah, there, I think, um, beyond the obvious things of, of modeling what you expect from the people that you're responsible for and continued acts of sincerity. Uh, it, it, for us, I think, it was making the program more than uh, a product that wins and loses basketball games. So what that means is our players were visible in the community. Our players were active and committed on our campus. Uh, we wove the education of them as a student athlete 
into the overall mission of the university. We didn't ever want to be separate and apart from that. We wanted to be a front porch, a beacon of that for our institution. And so um, that meant giving back to the community and, and being visible and um, being a part of people's lives, not just a product that they watched on Wednesdays or Saturdays on TV or at the Lloyd Noble Center. So in other words, we, we wanted our, our coaches, our staff and our players um, to be real active humans involved in the life of our institution and our community. And I think that's a big part of um, the sustained excellence. I, I think parents and, and their daughters uh, wanted to be a part of that mission that we had that was greater than winning and losing games. Um, and so that helps in recruiting, that helps in growing your fan base, that helps in uh, maintaining alumni connections through the years. So uh, it's that people, that person factor, that very human factor that I think um, really laid the ground floor for that, uh, uh, that sustained excellence to occur. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. Tell me a little bit more, maybe about two things. Like, What were some of the things that as a team or maybe individual players were involved in or did to be a part of the community or serve the community? And then two, what did you see or find was the impact of stressing that on your individual athletes and maybe even on your larger team culture? Yeah. Well, um, to start, we had a program that I instituted the very first year and it it was sustained throughout all 25 years called Sooner Big Sis and with, with elementary schools and Norman has grown so large there's we didn't have enough athletes to to put one in every elementary school and so we would kind of put names in a hat and draw them out but our idea was that um, that our our student athletes would be involved in the lives of elementary students now we started with um uh, the reach being wide, you know, this classroom, that classroom, once a week, I'm going to go here and be in second grade. Next week, I'll be in third grade. And we found real quickly that depth was more impactful. And so we would anchor it. Uh, we, schools had their own ways of figuring it out as lots of teachers wanted a student athlete in their classroom. They'd maybe put them in a, in a hopper and draw it out, but they would figure it out. And so each student athlete would have a classroom that they went to once a week throughout the entire year. So it wasn't, we're going to go read because it's Dr. Seuss's birthday. Uh, it was every Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock, Lanisha Caulfield is going to McKinley Elementary to the second grade classroom. And that happened every week. And what we found as a result of that was that uh, our players were really able to impact, maybe not a huge cross-section of kids, but a classroom of 17 to 25 kids really emphatically. I have a letter that, and all this stuff is so super fresh in my brain because I had to clean out my office, you know, four months ago. So you're going through these files and you're like, oh, wow, I forgot about that. I have a letter that uh, I've kept uh, and didn't toss in, in March when I cleaned out my office. Um, and it's from a father uh, of an elementary student in, in, whose child was in a classroom that Lanisha Caulfield, who was one of our tremendous guards on our 2002 team, uh, all Big 12 conference player, tremendous, tremendous basketball player, even better human being. Nish went to that classroom every single day. And he said that he, had, he was having such trouble getting his little boy to go to school. 
He didn't want to get dressed. He was acting out. He had behavioral problems. But I think it was a Thursday. But every Thursday, he'd get up and get ready for school. And he was early waiting for the bus. And the dad could not figure out why his kid wanted to go to school on Thursdays. And after a while, he asked the teacher and the teacher said, well, the only thing that's different on Thursday is no you women's basketball player comes to our classroom. So he started having that conversation with his son and that was it. He wanted to read with Nish and go outside and play basketball with her at recess. And so he began to get excited about school because of her presence there. That's one of those that, um, man, for whatever problems or whatever trouble it was worth trying to schedule that and get our students in those classrooms, are you kidding me? That was worth the whole 25 years of trying to do that uh, because of the impact on that particular child. So that's one way. Another thing that we always did is we paired our team each season with uh, a philanthropic organization, almost always in Norman, sometimes in Oklahoma City. Uh, but we would have one organization that we were tied to for an entire year. The hope of our, our connection with a philanthropic organization, our community, is that a student athlete will find something that speaks to them specifically so that when they graduate and go on to have a family and live in Chicago or New York or some small town in, in Kansas, that they find a place to give back and that they want to be involved in their local communities because of the experience they had throughout their career here at Oklahoma. And, and things speak to people. We have we had some students um, who, who weren't comfortable with elderly folks. If we, if our particular alignment for a year was aging services, where you spend a lot of time with elderly people, there were some who, who didn't feel comfortable with that. That wasn't their choice, but, but they really enjoyed being with the children at children's hospital, or they really in, enjoyed building houses for Habitat for Humanity. And so as those alignments changed throughout their four years, we hope that we found something that everyone could fall in love with and connect to so that they would be service-minded when they when their careers are over at Oklahoma. And then we had um, consistent alignments with uh, uh, the local cancer center and the children's hospital and just tons and tons of stories of uh, connections. Those kids just lasso your hearts. And um, I have a list of them, a shelf full of, I'm pointing to my shelf, of um, uh, pictures of and and artwork uh, that those kids gave through the years and those are just the phenomenal connections that that get you at the time but live with you long after that and and to answer your question about what that does for overall team culture a lot of things the main one being perspective uh, it can be so easy sometimes to feel like we have it so hard, you know, it's hard for us to even have this conversation, but student athletes sometimes feel like they just have it so hard. We look at them and go, are you kidding me? You have everything. And other people are looking at them and say, are you kidding me? You're playing on TV. Look at all the Jordan gear you get. Look at how you get to travel. There's all this stuff, but it's so easy to feel sometimes like life is really hard and they don't have everything they need and they feel put upon. And when you get out and you serve your community, you find out really how blessed you are. And uh, it creates uh, sort of a softness uh, within your heart that makes uh, connections and the stickiness of teams work better. Man, those stories are really powerful. Thanks for sharing those. And I think what you said there at the end is so powerful. It's just the perspective that just this in your face reminder that life is not about you. 
And you know, the other thing that was really powerful when you talked about what you guys did with the elementary classrooms is the consistency of it. They showed up every week. And just as a, kind of as a rule in life, I've found that just showing up is maybe the most powerful thing you can do. Just show up consistently in people's lives is really, really powerful. And for that one letter that you got from that dad about his son, I'm sure that there were multiple other kids that were in that same boat that on Thursdays, they were pumped to get to their classroom just to be around those student athletes. And so, yeah, as coaches, I think that's just so important for us to consider how we can help, help the athletes that we're leading discover the power of showing up consistently, but then also put them in situations like you talked about where they get perspective on life that, Hey, yeah, we're, we're still playing a game here. You know, we're, we're part of a team here and what we're doing is important, but this isn't the end all be all in life. And then, like you said too, hopefully it sets them up for success when they leave that they are people that contribute and serve their communities wherever they go. And just think that that can't be understated how important that is for us to consider as we lead teams and programs. And the adage remains true that when you give, you get, you know, we were giving to our community, but oh my heavens, we, what we received, um, can't put a price tag on. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode. And thanks again to coach Cole for coming out of the podcast. That does it for part one of this conversation, but we'll be back next week with part two. As always, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to get the podcast notes, go to coachesclubpod.com. I was so challenged by Coach Cole's dinner story and her response to that. I don't think she's alone in having an experience like that as a coach. But what I admire about how she handled it was first that she bought the dinner as a way for her to leave that experience in the restaurant and not become bitter about their words. And second, that she recognized that the same people criticizing her were the same people giving her all that praise when things were going well. So that's my challenge to you. Be mindful of the criticism and praise that you're listening to. There's a lot of noise coming from people who lack context about our job and team, which makes it critical to surround yourself with the right voices and stay grounded in who you are as a person. Like I mentioned in the intro, I'm running another cohort beginning November 3rd. The cohort is six weeks long and will meet Wednesday nights at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. There's only 12 spots available for this cohort. You can learn more or sign up at transformsport.org cohorts, or just click the link in the show details. I'll also be continuing to run some book clubs on the Coach's Guide to Teaching. You can learn more about those or join the wait list for the next round at cgtbookclubs.com. Thanks for listening to the Coach's Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.